Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Who will be the casualties? Aaron Wambsaka? Do you think Wan- he could survive? I think Aaron Wambasaka could survive if Man United were to sending your academy players is worth double. Wow, uh, yeah. So Rashford, yeah, as, a, makes sense. as a huge signing, as a huge sale, might actually solve a hell of a lot of United's FFP problems. I've got a list of possible next managers. I'll go through some of them. But I can't get away from Postacoglu being your next, next manager. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Ripple Effect with me, James Lawrence Alcott. Now, the phrase, this is Man United, has become an all-encapsulating meme in recent times, providing a shortcut of exasperation of the footballing world, world to be understood. In just three words, it describes the mediocrity with which the club regularly finds itself on the pitch. In stark comparison to the trophy-laden period between 1990 and 2013, under a certain Scotsman, 38 trophies, including 13 Premier League titles, 5 FA Cups and 2 Champions League titles, if you were wondering. Blame since then has been wholeheartedly attributed to the Glazer family by its fan base, who bought the club in 2005 and enjoyed the glow of Fergie time, but have been incapable of reaching the heights ever since. But on Christmas Eve, British billionaire, billionaire, can't say billionaire, and former Chelsea flirt, Sir Jim Ratcliffe, acquired 25% of Manchester United, taking control of football operations. It is expected Sir Dave Brailsford, Ineos Director of Sport, and Jean-Claude Blanc, CEO of Ineos Sport, and former executive of Juventus and Paris Saint-Germain, will have seats on the Manchester United club board. Ratcliffe will inject 300 million uh, is that £237 million, that is, into the club for investment in its infrastructure, taking his immediate outlay to roughly $1.5 billion. That's £1.2 billion. So will this see the return of the almighty Red Devils? Can they shake the shadow of Sir Alex to create a new identity? And if so, who will be the casualties? I haven't got a clue, but I know a man who might. My guest this week, Sam Peoples from United Peoples TV. We got there in the end. Welcome back, everyone, to the Ripper Vec, and welcome you, Sam, into Spotify Studios. It's, it's nice. been a long time coming. Mate, when did I last see you? It must have been a, a good while. Well, in ago. person, I, I don't think you remember the last time you saw me, Sam. Oh, let's not talk about <laughs> that. We'll save that for the after hours podcast. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, delighted to have you on, mate. Um, so, if you guys me. don't know, Sam, uh, you're probably not a Man United fan, be one thing. On. Uh, one of the biggest Man United YouTube channels focusing on. News, facts, insight, journalism. That is what United People's TV is. Uh, we had you on the podcast remotely, didn't we, right at the start? And yeah. that was when the whole like ownership thing was kind of kicking off. And now we're at the other side of it. Uh, there are still a lot of questions. 
Um, but the first question I'm going to ask you is, how do you feel about the takeover? It's been exhausting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's Are you been... happy for it to be a sort of closed chapter? I mean, it's not closed. It's yeah. like we're on like chapter four. I have right. no idea. I don't even, no idea how long this book is. How many chapters do you think it's got? It's got at least four more. Do you think? Yeah, it has. Because ultimately, this is a 25% takeover, right? So I've been calling it a takeover, and so many people keep going, oh, Sam, it's not a takeover, it's an investment. But this is the thing I want to say at the start, and this is, kind of sums the Glazer family up. They've given up 100% control of the football operations of the club for 25% ownership. That's how little they care about. Round of applause. Yeah. Great deal. Well, they've done well. No, 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 <laughs> but, no, but that's all they care. They, they've held on to the 75%, which is the commercial side of things, knowing full well that they're not capable of doing anything from a football perspective. And they've finally reached a point where they had to get investment. If they didn't have to, we wouldn't be at this point. Mm. But there has to be some element of, and obviously the first thing you went to there is, is a disdain for the Glazers, understandably. Mm. But so obviously the other side of that is an element of happiness. Is there any ha- happiness creeping in? Or I imagine it's a it similar, sort of... similar happiness to... Um, what would be the word? Relief, concern, Relief doubt. is definitely concern. There's kind of similar parallels to um, Newcastle and Mike Ashley. When they just got rid of him, they were like, let's just ignore that it's, you know, the Saudi state taking over. And it's let's just be happy that Ashley's... And then they can get the moral questions now. And at this time, there's a lot of United fans that are saying that people have compromised because we've gone from wanting a full takeover to a 25% takeover. Mm. How can you possibly be happy at that? But the two choices were the Glazers stayed and just waited for another year, hoping that somebody paid six billion, which they might have done next year with the extra Champions League revenues, X, Y, Z. Or Jim Ratcliffe coming in and taking control of the football operations. And out of those two situations, there's only one choice. Do you, With that in mind then, do, do you think... Did you think this was going to be going on for another year? It could ha- It could well have. Basically, I, I remember, as I said, this <laughs> whole really thing... They really don't care about that. They, they do not. Wild. They do not. The whole thing has been so exhausting because it started with Ratcliffe buying 69% mm. of all of the Glazer shares. And then people who own shares on the New York Stock Exchange said, oh, hold up here, mate. Like, you can't buy those shares and then not buy ours. We're going to launch legal cases against you. So they said, oh, crap, can't do that. Right, that's what else can we do here? And they came up with the idea of buying all the gla- buying a 25% of each Glazer's shares out and the New York Stock Exchange, therefore kind of keeping everyone happy. And it's just, it's a mess. I realised today, like The Athletic published an article, Man United employed 56 lawyers to go through this whole process. Right. 56, it's like five football teams wow. of lawyers they've had because it's been such a convoluted, complicated process. And it's just it just sums them up, and I guess it gets worse and worse the more money that's available because everyone's looking for a loophole. So need paperwork shapes. to go through that loophole. So uh, we normally do a word of the week. I've actually got a few this week, and we will find our way through the following words: identity. I've got ghost, and I've got ownership. Let's start with ownership. Mm. So, what is the best definition of ownership? Well, first of all, the, the top line uh, definition is the act, state, or or right of possessing something. But then I searched what is the best definition of ownership. And this is from uh, Legal Information Institute, which is probably oh, Cornell. So, But I kind of, I guess, comes back to it in a way, which is interesting when I've done my research on the people that are going to be coming through. Because as I say, we're going to talk about the possible casualties, but I think structurally it's going to be interesting and in that you've got so much knowledge on that, having followed it in such depth. But ownership is the legal right to use, possess and give away a thing. 
Ownership can be tangible, such as a personal property and land, or it can be of intangible things such as intellectual properties, property rights. But that first bit for me, the legal right to use, possess, and is the important thing for me is give away a thing. That, that was the thing I found interesting. And the reason I searched this up was, one, the top line of who owns the football club, right? Mm. And I guess, you know, the Glazers are giving away a certain amount, but they're keeping a, a certain amount, obviously, as well. But then down to the, the people that are going to come in and ideally, obviously for Man United fans, turn this into a success. When I've done my research on those different people, what I actually noticed a lot of the time was a lot of people that despite in very high positions, in terms of ownership, actually their sort of super skill is delegation. <laughs> and I, I, I think that's, that can lead to, I think if you want it to be an amazing thing, great. But at some point there has to be an element of accountability and we'll, we'll obviously get to that. Um, the first paragraph of a 2019 review, again, as I have a little search, the first paragraph says the rapid growth of Ineos these past few decades has been categorized by shrewd investments and great timing. Do you believe that this acquisition in the form that it's in is a shrewd investment and great timing from their point of view? It is, it is, if your pockets are deep enough, United is such an obvious winning investment. Regardless of it being just 25%. Yeah, no, completely because the Glazers ultimately still own 75% and they're just interested in the greed. They're just interested in that 75% being worth more in three years' time than it is now. Hmm. I'm not going to put any money into it. I'm not going to pay for it, but I want a slice of that pie. Hmm. And that's what they think. Would uh, they have been stupid to sell it? Um, do you know what I mean? If what you, take away feeling. No, no. Somebody would have been stupid enough to pay what they wanted at this moment in time. It was an unrealistic over-evaluation. Basically, it's kind of how a lot of football transfers go these days. You don't buy the player for what he's worth now. You pay for a little bit of kind of what he might be worth in two years' time. Right. That's what the Glazers were trying to do and sell Man United. They're like, we know that if we build a new stadium, it's going to be worth a lot more. Mm. We know that if United start winning again, you're going to be worth a lot more. We want a slice of that potential pie in the future. And that's why Sheikh Jassim wouldn't pay what they wanted and why um, Ineos wouldn't pay what they wanted either. And so, But with Ineos, is, this, is it great timing and is it shrewd? I think so anyway, because it, as I said... United, so, United, so why is it great timing, firstly, then? Great timing because we're as low as we can be. Like As far as, as, far as the Glazers' ownership goes, they couldn't have squeezed any more out of the club. We're, our cash in the bank is down to the lowest it's been since the Glazers took over. We're buying players on a credit card. Like Manchester United... Explain, have, that, explain that to people that didn't understand so what you mean. Man United have got revenues north of £600 million a year. And there's... Utterly from commercial yeah, things, yeah, yeah. none from players because they've been no, so bad. Because they're so bad at selling players. Yes. But overall, in Manchester United, as a brand in the world, has made 600 million in the last year, mm -hmm. which is the, well, City somehow are over 700 million, question mark, question mark, question mark. But <laughs> 600 million is a fair amount of money, and therefore a club should be very sustainable. Should be able to. And, and it's kind of unsinkable like, to it, the depths of the It should that you're be fine. About, right? It should be totally fine. But because the cash has just been hemorrhaged out of the club, because we've spent massively. The problem at United over the last 10 years hasn't been spending. It's been who's been spending it. So I had a chat with Kieran Maguire about this and he, he was quite uh, punchy with his comments and he said that it's not about the Glazers. The failure is not about the Glazers. They've spent a lot of money. Like, could they have spent more? Absolutely. But he was saying it was down to, you know, the people beneath them. Like, their job is just 
essentially a cash cow, but it's it's fortunate. It's like it's actually that cash cow is in ATM because like they don't need to put the cash in because there's, there's so many commercial options there. I mean, it, he, ultimately, he put it on like for example, the amount of money that Man City have. Yeah, they've had huge success as well um, be, because be, of the people that they brought in. Exactly, but the Glazers put Edward Wood in. The Glazers put Richard Arnold in. Mm. So they are. They are therefore responsible for the person who is in charge of the wallet. Do you, do you think that the anger, like, you know, and we've seen this elsewhere, you know, you've seen it with, um, you know, Tottenham, you've seen it with Stan Kroenke at Arsenal, you've seen it with a lot of clubs where as long as things are going well on the pitch, then everyone would have kept quiet about all of this. Well, they did. That's what no one really said anything from 2005 to 2013. Mm. Fergie was just... For Fergie, Glen- an iconic plaster. No, but for Fergie, <laughs> the best plaster, best plaster we've ever seen. How has he never had that sponsor? No idea. <laughs> yeah, but he was for for Fergie. The Glazers were the ideal owners. They never stuck the nose in. They never did anything. They never told him to do anything. As long as he was winning, he could control everything, and mm. it worked perfectly for him. And then when he left, is when it all just everything started collapsing. Yeah, you're right. And and he had such a machine by that point, and also. I think recru- recruitment when you're at the top and you're an enticing club to be at is it's not it's not easy but it's kind of easier possibly. It should be half the conversation. Like if you're yeah. winning stuff like you won the treble. Okay, right. That's an easy conversation to come and join us the year after. Here's I mean this is off the script but like, I'd love to know your thoughts on it. If if you think of what is labeled at that Man United team once Fergie left, it was that it was an aging side. Hmm. With the problems at board level that revealed themselves over the next 10 years, do you think Fergie would have been able to keep it together? Or do you think because of how recruitment's changed, how you're buying, you know, buying younger players has changed and things like that, do you think that there would have been a real downturn regardless? Fergie would have hated being a manager in the modern era. Like United didn't have a Twitter account until Fergie retired. He was so against. Is that true? Yeah, he was so. What? It's bad, isn't it? He was so against the modern player power rise and agents and everything that's gone on since. Would he have got found out then? Do you think? It's not that he would have got found out, but his style of management would have been butting heads with the way football was going. It wouldn't have worked. Mm. I don't think so. Fascinating. Uh, I'd love to. Yeah, let me know on Twitter um, how you feel about that because I would be fascinated to know. What would have happened? You know, what, who would have been those next players that would have come in? But would have been an environment, and then the overall man management of Fergie would have got more more of a tune out of them. There might have been, I think, one of the problems that David Moyes had was that inability to have the gravitas to bring in the top players. They didn't. They weren't a, wanting a, to come there. That a was bit, a problem. A big too, problem right? for David Moyes is he um, he kind of ignored a lot of advice because it, it was the same time as Fergie and, and David Gill leaving. Hmm. Moyes just sacked all the back, like Munenstein went. He didn't keep any coach at all. And it was like, you probably should have kept yeah. at least one person who knew what was going on behind the scenes. And then ultimately everything started sinking anyway. So let's talk about what the structure at board level was yep. um, just briefly. So so what what has it been over this period of time? And, and I guess then in the last year, what, you know, where are we at? So the main structure of the board where the decisions are made, there's 12 seats on the board. Six of them are Glazers. Three of them are... One was Patrick Stewart, who's now been... Not made... from Star Trek. No, not that Patrick Stewart. Unfortunately, it'd be a lot better if it was him. Just coming in. <laughs> <laughs> Make... yeah, it was a different film, but yeah, yeah fine. <laughs> <laughs> ah, well, 
Yeah, so it works anyway. But uh, six of them were Glazers. Three of them were sort of independent directors because there were people on the New York Stock Exchange. They represented their interests. And there were three people from United. One was like Richard Arnold recently. One was Not Cliff. the presenters. Uh, no. just again to uh, one was Cliff Beatty, who's a sort of legal representative. They're like three employees of the club. Mm. Now, I think uh, this is where it's all a little bit confusing and still because there's because basically what the Glazers have done is they've split United in half. It's going to be Manchester United PLC and Manchester United Football Club. So there's going to be a football board and there's going to be a club board right? where club decisions are made. <laughs> so, for example, right, we're CEO Richard Arnold has been sacked. He's gone. Oof, out. Okay. And they're saying it might be Jean-Claude Blanc coming in, but it might not be. He might just actually still work for Ineos and be in and around the club. Because the CEO is somebody who's going to have to work on the commercial side of stuff as well as the football. So the Glazers might still have a little bit of control over who that might be. Okay. And is that is that their area of expertise, Glazers? Like, I mean, or... they have no area of expertise. They are crap businessmen. And have they utterly stayed out of it as well? Out of what? So when you talk about that, you know, the old board, because mm. um, I think, I guess there's two things. There's There's mismanagement and then there's like no management. Like yeah. if, has it just been left to be stale? Or have they made bad decisions? I mean, you don't really, as a fan, have too much... Uh, you can't really see what's being said at board level. So we yes, don't true. actually know the involvement that they've had. But from everything that's happened, we can make our own assumptions. But and whether, it, whether it's no management or mismanagement, it's crap management. Mm. Right? That's the answer. Okay. So with the uh, new change, as we say, the new structure could be... The following. So part of its deal to buy 25% stake, and yes, we'll receive two seats on the PLC board. John Reese and Rob Levin expected to fill them. Uh, Dave Brailsford, the former mastermind of British Cycling, and Jean-Claude Blanc, we spoke about. Uh, Ineos Sports CEO will become directors on the football board, given it has two seats on the board. Ineos will have some say over who the next CEO will be, but not the final word. So in terms of the the three that you feel are, are coming in, mm. you've got Brailsford possibly as chairman. That's that's what that's the name I keep putting next to him, but yeah. I don't really know. Okay, uh, Jean Claude Blanc as CEO and Dan Ashworth as the sporting director. And Ratcliffe is Ratcliffe. Um, is he just a money man and he's got the acquisition? How involved do you think he's going to be? Well, he said that he's going to because uh, what. Ratcliffe has done in the in the first few weeks since the takeover was announced on the 24th, he's ticked all of the easy boxes which were there to be ticked. He's been to Old Trafford. The Glazers never held a face-to-face meeting with staff. He's already done that. He's already been to Carrington. He's already met fan representative groups yesterday. He met the mayor of mayor of Manchester yesterday. He's his presence already is probably more than the Glazers haven't done in 20 years. So easy that way. It's so it? easy. It's like the easiest. Like if you're a PR guy, I'm like Jim. I've got, I've got it, I've got it. Yeah, and, and you haven't screwed up yet. Either. No, like, you haven't, <laughs> haven't worked a day, have you? And it's because he hasn't, and he hasn't even completed the takeover yet. So that was an easy win for a lot of United fans. Communication and presence was like that was number one on my sort of Jim Ratcliffe to do list. And there's, mm-hmm. there's so much more he needs to do, but the early signs and the early indications are quite positive. And he's also, I don't know if it was from that meeting with the staff or, or just broadly, there will be investment, but there. He's kind of said it's it's about success. It's not about making money. Which, again, is an easy PR win at this moment in time. But if he follows it with actions, then, yeah, we're all on board. So this is where, like, I, I want to sort of run through these three guys because 
when I I watched your fantastic videos on them, and they are really good. Just Thanks, mate. so good, mate. What's first of all, it kind of took my breath away when all oh, they're back. Oh, but I, the thing that kept coming back to me was one a sort of quite a lot of delegation when it comes to all of them. Mm. The one actually in particular, I thought the one I'm unsure about is David Brailsford. If I'm honest, the one I'm like, wow, you're going to be a juggernaut is Jean-Claude Blanc. Yeah. And then Dan Ashworth, I, I'm fascinated by him, is, is can he can he get the structure in place that he needs to succeed? Because he's previously done that at other yeah. places. Uh, to And will he be left alone? I wonder about that David Brailsford and Dan Ashworth relationship and how that's going to be, um, be affected. Um, let's start off with David Brailsford. Sorry, but the thing I was going to say was the concern I have is that relationship, but also a sort of uh, being overstretched because when you're chucking billions about all the time mm. and Ineos has so many different sports teams, if some of these guys aren't, you said in the video several times, understandably, Man United is such a big thing that they need to kind of leave what they're doing and, and, and yeah. go and sort this out. You know, will they do that? And if they do do that, can it make, it's not going to be a place that makes, or can it make enough money for it to be um, something that's kind of worth it? Because you're going to take your best people mm. and put them on one thing. And you've then said, it's not about making money here. That seems counterintuitive for one of the biggest companies in the world. Do you know what I mean? I, um, I've got similar sort of concerns about Dave Browsford because he's, he's basically a processes man. Mm. He's, He's there to come in and do exactly what he did at Nice. He goes in and he audits the place and he says, right, this is working. You're doing your job properly. Well, you need that person. And he spots the holes and he spots where cogs the are needed. The 1% that you yeah, can get. Exactly. That's what he's talking about a lot, right? Yeah. His marginal gains. So he's come to United and no doubt he's been doing it for a while behind the scenes. And there really is not much of United's footballing structure, if anything, that you keep. Nothing's work. Nothing works. It's kind of a clean slate, mm. which might make it ever so slightly easier. You haven't got like, well, Richard Arnold had to go, and John Murto technically is a football director, but he was an internal promotion at United and hasn't really done his job. Brailsford, I don't really know where he sits in the hierarchy. If I'm honest, I think he's probably the guy that Ratcliffe picks the phone up to and goes, "How's it going?" And then yeah. he'll know. Do you know the, the thing that I think is going to be so important for David Brailsford is humility, mm. and I. Again, I think you've got a lot of people here that get can get the best of others, but like from like root and branch, like there, there it feels like there needs to be so many changes. Um, but he could have easily, in a different sport, he's the sporting director for me. Well, that's sport with cycling, right? Yeah, and I think again, I think overall knowledge of sport, you can transfer things from different places, and I guess maybe that's those are different nooks and crannies that could. Uh, lead to those marginal gains, whereas Dan Ashworth is the utter expert in the sport itself. But in your video about Dan Ashworth, he talks about he's in the middle of the wheel. Yeah. Um, and again, I just think I I feel like I can I can imagine little David Brailsford to the side going, um, I, can I come and sit in the middle of the wheel as well? That's the complicated thing. It's like, what's the name of that machine? You know, when you put loads of wheels together, and they all turn at the same time. Yeah, well, the cogs, right? Yeah, one of those. Yeah. Anyway, cogs. Clock. Let's, let's call it a clock. Yeah, let's call it. Say it's a clock or That's what needs to happen. Like, if Dan Ashworth yes. is one wheel, yeah. then Dave Brailsford is another wheel, and they all have to be introduced in unison and work together at the same time. And because United don't have any of that structure in place, there's a lot of points of failure, 
right here. Like Jean-Claude Blanc is very experienced. He has modernized clubs. He's gone to Juve. He's gone to PSG. He probably... That's it, exciting, it, Jean-Claude it, It's just, it's the boring stuff. All I want to talk about is the football. I oh, was that offside. I oh, scored a hat-trick. Brilliant. But we're missing, our club is missing this so badly. You see what's going on at City. Like they've had the money, but they've had the structure. Mm. And the, stru- the success would not have followed without said money, without said 115 charges. And without the structure in place. But United have just never had it. We've yeah. had the money and now we've wasted it. And and that's the thing, is I think the gluttony of the commercial revenue that was already in place has allowed for people to hide. Where I think Jean-Claude Blanc, Blanc seems so smart in that area of it that actually you could turn it to, you know, being on steroids here. Like with, you know, if you've got the revenues that's there, but if you look at what he did at PSG... And, and turned it into a, essentially a fashion brand, which yeah. uh, which works with the identity of of Paris and France of that all of those connotations that come with with that. I'm fascinated to see what he does with Man United. So there's there's reports and coming out today uh, that suggest that he might not be CEO. And as I said, that might be the crossover of the C. The CEO position is the one. We could, you can talk about sporting director, head of recruitment, CEO. If it's not him, do you, is there anyone else? Uh, been there's not limited? been anybody else's that names have been thrown for just yet. But okay. the CEO is the one that will cross over between commercial and football. So that's of all these hires, that's one where the Glazers still might have some sort of say in it. They won't be able to have any sound head of recruitment or sporting director. I've got nothing to do with them. CEO might do. Okay. Hmm. What is um? Do you know much about sort of Ineos in terms of their philosophy? Because I think that's the other thing is, so so QPR just got a new uh, chief executive, yeah. a really young guy who was working for a, a company called I want to say, I want to say Retexo. That might be wrong, and forgive me. It's one of those you know with certain words that just won't stay in your head. I've looked at it three times, but anyway. Uh, but he was part of a company that does kind of audits for clubs around yeah. the world, and he's worked with you know biggest clubs in the world, and he did an audit for QPR, and then they went. Do you fancy sorting this out? <laughs> nice audit, mate. Um, so it feels like David Brails is going to come in and do, again, there's another audit in the midst here. Once you kind of made an audit, and, and where I'm going to kind of get to here is, is that second word that I wanted to talk about, which was, which was identity. And we'll come back to that. But mm. initially, I'll give you the identity uh, definition. The fact of being who or what a person or thing is. And again, I, I went for a sort of second search on this, which I thought was a bit more fruitful for me. Identity encompasses the memories, experiences, relationships, and values that creates one's self, one's sense of self. Mm. I think that's really, that, I'll come back and I'll read that again. So, in terms of Ineos, who've worked with a lot of sports companies, uh, sports, and are making their way in here, do you have any idea on, on what they're there about? Like, do they have their kind of own like mission statement or way of being? Do you know well, what I mean? I think, well, Ineos, look. Ineos's revenues are like north of sixty billion dollars a year. Like, they make money. Like, money is fine. So then you're thinking from from a brand. Anyway, I'm just kind of thinking about how they got into sports in the first place. They're thinking, right, lads, but we've got an absolute crap load of money. What can we do to make our brand look better? You know, it'd be really good if we associate ourselves with like winning sports teams, like elite sports. All right, good. I tell you what, that somewhere else. (laughs) I tell you what we should do. Like, should we? Should we should we go and buy Team Sky? So then Ineos Grenadiers come around, and then they go into sailing, and then they become like a primary sponsor of Mercedes AMG. I think that's what it is. They want to be associated with like elite sports performance and winning teams because that reflects good on the brand of Ineos. Mm. I think 
from what I've seen as well, it's interesting that as a company, they, they're quite fast and loose in terms of like buying companies and then selling them on again and mm. taking opportunities. Like I said, that initial, initial paragraph, I think that's one thing that's kind of been there with them, which again, I think all of these things, when we talk about the ripple effect, I think what it leads for me is, is questions and concerns about how is this going to play out? And what I'm intrigued is one, one is one where, which feels quite safe, which is what David Bresford's about, which is marginal gains is about always getting better. And again, this 2019 review, when I was reading it, it was, they were talking about their association with um, cycling mm. and those teams were kind of saying, and I guess it's a, it's a propaganda piece to a point, but they were kind of saying how uh, what's been amazing is is that there is that kind of um, uh, cohesion in terms of understanding what it's about and it's about getting better every day and getting better in, in small areas. Yeah. And so if they come in and do that, you know, like you say, there are a lot of, of gains to be had. I think Dan Ashworth will look at the look at it very quickly and go, like this needs to be aligned much better and, and that will move it forward. The other side of it that I'm concerned about is the fact of being fast and loose and taking opportunities when they're there. Mm. Because when it then comes back down to taking an opportunity when it comes to, say, recruitment, will there be that desire to go, oh, go on, just do it and get it? Like, will they be able to, again, and it keeps coming back to Dan Ashworth here, will he have the hierarchy that he needs and wants to slow down the process and align the process what? instead of going Ratcliffe or, or pressure from elsewhere going, well, no, he's good, go get him now. Well, that's that's going to be down to basically, so the concept is really, in my head anyway, I don't know whether it's actually going to work out like this, but Ineos come in, they gave all the money. They appoint Jean-Claude Blanc as CEO. He's the chief of the vision. He's the guy who knows where United need to be in five years' time. Off the field? Not on the field. No, off the field. Yeah. Off the field. He's like, right, in five years' time, this is where we want to get to. You say how he went into PSG. Right, I want us to become like the fashion brand behemoth. Mm. That's where we're going in five years' time. And every decision in his mind has to align with that, right? So he's in, he's in control and charge of that. So if Ineos come in and they want to be fast and loose with recruitment and spunk $150 million on, bring Harry Kane back in. Mm. Go, Hold on. Here. Well, I guess what, what saves them a little bit is they can't. Yeah, they can't. Well, we can't, but we're spending, as I said, we're spending on a credit card. We're borrowing money to spend. It's ridiculous. So because Blanc's there, that's a bit of a blocker for Ineos doing anything fast and loose. And then it goes down to Dan Ashworth, who has to be given the autonomy to execute a sporting direction. As long as it ties into the vision, then you're good. So you can't then go to Dan Ashworth and, and hopefully Dan Ashworth would also had a head of recruitment. Mm. So they're going to have to have the autonomy and say, right, your budget's X. We need X, X, X players go and find us. And then United have to be a lot smarter in the market instead of just going for the big, you know, the top lines, the Harry Canes, the 100, 150. They haven't worked for us. Mm -hmm. You need more lower level 30 to, instead of 30 to 50 million pound signing. But you do that and you'll raise the floor of your club. And all of these distinct departments, head of recruitment, sporting director and the CEO of the vision all need their own autonomy that all sort of feed into each other. So I don't think Ineos being fast and loose should affect any of that as long as there's an actual plan and a chief executive in charge of it. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, coming back to the, the delegation, but maybe then that delegation leads to accountability. You have people that are given the football operations mm. and of this massive, you know, corporation, you then kind of, they are allowed to work within the confines yeah, it, if it's just it's, been about the football. There's something that keeps going over my head over and over again. Like, think about the legacy value now of Jim Ratcliffe or whoever it may be Whoever takes United back to being the biggest club in English football will never, ever be forgotten. That, and I think that's the Dan Ashworth. There is, I think that's the only job that takes Dan Ashworth because 
I think it is such a sleeping giant. And a, a critique that I've had of Eric Ten Hag is that when he came in, he could have really ripped it up, mm. like ripped up the squad, gone, sorry, you've got to go backwards and go forwards like Arteta did. And he didn't do it. But I think with these guys, it feels so obvious that that needs to be done, that he will be able to go and do that and then build, you know, a juggernaut. We should be a juggernaut. We haven't won the league in 10 years. We haven't won the Champions League in 15 years. And we are still, hand on heart, one of the three biggest clubs in the world. Mm. Still, despite the fact that we've not won hardly anything of note. How much of a priority is the stadium improvements because uh, coming back to what I said earlier like with ownership and, and fans feeling towards ownership often as long as you're winning on the pitch that, that's enough mm. um, like how much does that need to be sorted out or can that be sort of a medium priority I mean it needs to be sorted out but it definitely is a medium priority and if you ask me Probably uh, get a deal on plastics with uh, oh, very uh, nice, Ineos. Man. Sorted. Come on, lads. They do seats, I think. I think they actually do seats at stadiums. Well, every like single that. seat's going to have Ineos on. Or, or just be made from Ineos chemical products. Well, that'll do. That'll it's do. cheaper, isn't it? They like that. But um, if you ask me, a bigger priority is a new training ground. Because where do players spend 90% of their week? Training ground. Yeah. What, what's going to bring... Obviously, a, a wicked stadium, a glorious atmosphere to play in is going to bring a player to your club. But ultimately where they spend 90% of their time is, is going to be more important. Mm. And apparently that was a big re- part of the reason why Jude Bellingham didn't want to join United. I mean, he made the right fucking call, let's be honest. Yeah. He made yeah. the right call. Yeah, absolutely. But in my opinion, Old Trafford is such a... And United fans are all sitting there looking at, oh, look at the Burnabout. They've just renovated the Burnabout. <laughs> look, at the, look at the new camp. They're currently renovating. How dare you consider knocking Old Trafford down? But it's because the Glazers have never... Uh, Real Madrid and, and Barcelona had been investing in their stadium bit by bit over, not mega, but slight upgrades here or there. The Glazers haven't. They've done the bare minimum to mm. the point where now you go, well, I'll tell you what, lads, after 15-ish years of no investment, in a bad way, and it might be past the point. What? Of, you th- what so do you think that, really? You think they, they might be, there they is might a move real, away from Old There Trafford? is a real possibility that a stadium gets built. Man United owns so much ground around Old Trafford. Right. There is more than enough space to build a new stadium whilst... Playing in the current stadium. Play- and that's a big thing, right? Where do United play if you redo Old Trafford? Mm. We're not sharing with City. We're not sharing with There's a lot of clubs in Manchester. Uh, well, okay, Barry. let's go to Oldham. Let's have like <laughs> 4,500 descendants. That's a big... It's a massive undertaking. And again, kind of a reason why I'm excited about Jean-Claude Blanc. Because he's overseen what happened there with Juve. Yeah. And and led that project yeah and did it well that's interesting let's talk about Fergie let's get back to these words here because I put on Twitter what do Man United fans consider their identity and to come back to that definition, identity encompasses the memories, experiences, relationships and values that creates one's sense of self. Now, the answers that I got were, were fascinating. And I'll, I'll maybe kind of test you on that in a, in a sec. It'd be interesting to see if, if yours, yours align with yeah, some, yeah. some of the And there were different ones, but there were certain words that kept coming out. But in terms of that identity, a huge often with identity, I think, 
it's obvious you always go to the best identity that you can have, right? And I think that's very easy, obviously, with Man United because it's you know one of the most successful clubs ever. And but the identity is formed in those successful periods, and obviously under two Scotsmen, Busby mm. and, and Ferguson. When it comes to sort of the Man United identity, and I'm going to say escaping the shadow of Ferguson. That is something that I think Liverpool struggled with for a long time, trying to kind of figure out what is the best way to get out of kind of the shadow of those great teams of the past. That 30, I, 30 years to be precise, really. Yes. Um, but it's something that I think is is such an albatross for the playing staff and everyone involved in it, because that is the reference point time and again. Come back to that in, uh, intro from, from me. That, that phrase, this is Man United. Mm. If you actually really break it down, it's like... It's an exasperation of, you know, kind of where they are because, oh, hang on, this isn't right. We should be over here. Yeah. And that kind of, to get over there, you probably need to kind of work your way back to either that identity or a new identity. Um, how do you feel about the shadow of Ferguson? And how do you feel like Man United can get away from, is it get away from that? Or what, you know, how do you, it's, it's how not... do you recreate an identity that works that with those past relationships, again, like that definition says, but also carve something fresh in you. It's, it's not about getting away from it. Like you've, you've literally had that Busby, you've had the Munich air disaster, you've had the recovery, and that was sort of the, in my opinion, like the identity of Manchester United. It was how the club rose from the ashes there and did the unexpected and did it together, did it with Samat Busby there, did it with Bill Foulkes. It was uh, Bobby Charlton as captain, and he survived. That there is just an incredible narrative that was completely true. Mm. Uh, and I think that built a lot of United's identity. And then, you know, it was probably, it was post-Busby, Shad. Like, how do, you, how do you move on from Busby? And yeah. eventually, we, we did. And that took 20-odd years, right? Yeah, it, it did take 20-odd years. And we made a lot of mistakes. 70s and 80s, we got relegated. And then we found Fergie and that was kind of like, yeah, that's, <laughs> you're not finding Fergie again. That's not what I'm saying, but it's not about a case of moving on. It's about a case of just remolding and reshaping in the same way as Fergie had like great teams. Like he had his first championship, like his first Premier League winning team. And then he rebuilt it. And then in 2007, eight was probably his best team when mm. we switched to a four, three, three and kind of a fresh identity. And that, that word identity in the modern game for the modern fan, is directly linked to a start of play. Do you have inverted fullbacks? You know, are you playing with one striker up top? Where's the false nine? That's the identity of the club. It's not. It's just that's just a formation. The identity is far deeper. For, for United's identity is about doing the unexpected or just never say die. Like we'll never die is the, the surfer flag that still goes over the Stretford end, and that is such a like backs against the wall, everybody's siege mentality together. And that's what Fergie built, mm. especially with like Beckham. Like that Beckham documentary was incredible. But it really made me remember how everybody outside of Manchester United wanted to just crucify Beckham. And he came into his safe place, which was United. And we, wanted, we went on to win the treble that year. And he was an incredible player for us. And it was that everyone against United mentality. I'd say that's the identity of United and we've lost that. We're not the the fortress from within that we used to be. There's too many holes, there's too that's many back doors, there's too yeah, many yeah. tunnels, there's too many moles. Mm. And until we close up every single one of those doors and just become that club that everybody loves to hate again, 
we won't be united in the Premier League. I think the sort of loving to hate is because you are great. Success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Success. Yeah. Um, let me read for some of these. Zayn Ali says, and when I ask, like, what would you, you know, what what do you see as the Man United identity? He says, fast, exciting football. The way we played against Barcelona away last year is how I want it. All the way Klopp had Liverpool playing when they were the best team in the world. Valzor says, our identity currently is a transition team. Try and press high, play through the lines, but ultimately play on the break. I'd want us to be more of a direct attacking team trying to draw the press and quick, efficient passing, which kind of sticks with your style thing. Cameron uh, put forward, he was talking about two um, two quotes from Matt Busby and George Best, get at it, more than anything. Best United sides have tended to rely on free expression of players, Best, Cantona and Rooney, not suited to submitting to a more systematic tactical identity. Ooh, tough sentence. United is essentially a stage for entertainers. Tom G says, pace, power, penetration was always the Fergie line, wasn't it? Um Cian talks about an academy player in every match day squad since 1937. No one else comes close to that. I expect the new manager to do that. I mean, kind of off the point, but that comes back to your point of of that kind of like that youthful vigor that came from the you know the Busby Babes, and, and then Fergie kind of was able to realign with that. Joe Cook talks about fast transitional football. Alfie fast moving attacking football, being fearless. Lewis fast attacking football. Burns high paced, quick entertaining football. And Mace, um, this is a good tweet, overarching principles, trusting youth, whether that be our, our own signings, entertaining football, Old Trafford as a fortress. Again, uh, some of these, I think it comes, success creates the fortress, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But then style of play, attacking football, play with intensity, on and off the ball, lethal in transition, allow freedom in attack. Now, when I read all of those, first of all, I think it's interesting that with the Fergie thing is, you know, as romantic as you can be about someone like Fergie, I think one learning there is ruthlessness because mm. for all the love of Beckham he, he was gone he was gone sharp <laughs> there's so many no, no, there's I don't so mean, many and so is Lee Sharp by the way <laughs> there's a lot so, of, like, as many stories of like you know you see this now when you hear all these ex-pros talk about the um, you know like you know you see it with Roy Keane and those different guys there's the ones that got went out in a way that suited them and then there's the ones that got pushed out and pushed out pretty quickly yeah. but I think there's you know there's a that's an impressive thing in terms of what Fergie did. What I keep coming back to, fast attacking football, mm. transition football, people saying, we don't want to play like Pep. You kind of want, you want to be Liverpool, don't you? You want to be Liverpool. Hold on. I think you do though. I think you want to be, because also the other thing is, you talk about Busby and, and getting back to those heights. Mm. And I understand that's quite a triggering sentence for me to say. Okay, yeah. But you then, you said you then found Fergie. Now that's, um, that sounds like an easy sentence, but it took 20 years to do it, right? Mm. So I think it's, it's only understandable for it to be very difficult to find another Fergie. And, and, and who is that, that person? You probably, you know, do you, you only know until you know. And, and you've seen that at other clubs as well. Like David Dean knew it was Wenger and, um, and Liverpool knew it was Jurgen Klopp. Like, but if you're not going to be, and this comes back to what I was talking about with um, QPR and our chief executive, he was saying when when they were looking for a new manager, they looked at the top 10 leagues and looked at the trends of which teams are playing. And then they looked at the championship exclusively, same thing, and then kind of went with managers that kind of fit and align with that to allow you to be sort of successful in the game today. Yeah. If you If you want to retain the identity and you want to stay with, you know, the, the way the world's going, you have two options. Either you go the Arteta Pep possession route or you've got to be like Liverpool. I think 
when it as I said, identity is going to be intrinsically linked to how you play football, which is what about eighty percent of those responses were. Right, the identity of Man United needs to be fast flowing, attacking, and they're all completely correct. Because the other thing is that the youthful thing. Again, that comes. That's where that's where the sort of systematic changes can really help. Is the fact, and again, maybe Dan Ashworth. You think of Dan Ashworth, maybe DNA, like that Man United DNA. Get back to that because if you want to win a title with a bunch of kids, that's mm. only happened once, mm. and and that's the you know that's the exception that proves the rule. So if you want to kind of get back to that and do that again, there is so much change that needs to happen. But if you want to sort of short term get yourself back up there. That isn't, you know, look at Chelsea. They're kind of trying to do that. It's, it's dangerous. What, what I would say, though, about the youth is United's academy is, for all the problems that our club has had over the last five years, our academy has been trending in the completely opposite direction. We won the FA Youth Cup last year for the first time in a decade. Our under-18s are currently top of the league, 11 wins, 11, 11 games, 11 wins, 37 scored, six conceded. They are blasting it. And the quality of the players coming through our under-18s right now is the strongest it has been for a long, long... Like, we're talking about the gap between academy football and first-team football is huge. Mm. This crop here is closer to... Obviously, Kobe Mayne, who's just come through, and Garnacho, two winners of it. United fans should be excited about the next few years with players coming through. But to go back to your question on identity, right? And I think this has been one of Ten Hag's downfalls. So... When he came to the club, he started to do what you said, ruthlessness, rip stuff off. Ronaldo slapped him upside the head. Out you go, mate. Off you go. Just go and have a conversation with Piers Morgan. And then the Sancho stuff recently, which is, it's a comfortable to talk about that. But there's been so many examples of him being ruthless and him having a positive effect. And last year we finished third, we won the League Cup. I think that was as far as that team could have gone. And it was good. I did want to ask you about that. The two seasons, Mourinho had a great year. Mm. Solskjaer had a good year, I yeah, guess. He did. And then Ten Hag, Ten Hag's had a, a good year. Those sort of outliers, if you took them away, do you think you would have got to a better... This would have happened sooner? What, the takeover, you, think, you mean? Do you think that's at the ripple effect of those seasons of overperformance? Oh, absolutely. Has actually, like, even even with the contracts that you've handed out, like Rashford making the money he's making yeah. right now, that's done off the back of a... There's an article in The Guardian today when it was talking about how, you know... If last year thirty goals, but the, the other years it's twenty, fifteen, eleven, five. Like without those good seasons, do you think you've actually would have had a bit more growth overall? The, the the ironic thing is that when you if you f- go back and you look at the investment from the Glazers, the bigger investment actually comes in the down years. So when you don't finish inside the top four, is when Man United will spend big, and that's why Mourinho, for example, uh, we finished. Um, what was it? Finished, I can't remember where we finished. I think we finished second in his second year. And that's when the year after he got undermined. We didn't sign anybody. We spent like 60 mil compared to the rivals and then the third season syndrome. Mm. Uh, Mourinho's just got sacked today, I think. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm pretty yeah. sure it's the third season for Roma as well. Yeah, it might be. Yeah. Mate, it's absolutely bang on every third Funny, season. Funny, isn't it? It's just get that bet in. Like, it's a guaranteed. And that's that shows the power of, of the narrative. Like that, that often is is there all the time. Like, what is the story? Yeah. And the story of Mourinho, that's, that's the problem for Mourinho now, is that when it gets to the third year, you go, uh-oh. And yeah. that's the same with, I mean, to a point with Man United. I think we all thought, we all thought Man United would be able to kind of continue a little bit. I convinced, totally I convinced myself that Mourinho was like, I've won everything I need to win, but look, Fergie's got a legacy at one club. 
that's what I want. Yeah. I, and this is where I'm going to get it. I'm like, oh, it's going to be different. I'm like, no, no, the exact same thing happened. Mm. But the same, you know, same thing with Solskjaer, same happened with, with Ten Hag. But what I was saying there about the identity, yeah, sorry, the identity yeah. with Ten Hag, right? So success came in the first season. And what Ten Hag did, and you talk about the identity of Man United, and he came in the preseason in the second season. And then he said, I've been looking back at United. I've been, you know, watching those videos from 2007, 8. And I want to make Manchester United the best transition team in the world. He's basically just watched us like counter-attacking against Arsenal with like Ronaldo and Park and Rooney and go, I want a bit of that. Yeah. I want a bit of that. That's Look how excited the whole crowd is. So I think Ten Hag has sort of played into it and thinking, well, that's what United fans sort of expect. That's the sort of team I need to build towards. Whereas I would have loved him to have just gone, I saw that. Like, this new Man United identity will be Ten Hag's Man United. And I will change the course of where Man United are going from there, which he still could do. Yeah, but I think he had a bit of a, a diversion this summer, which I don't think has worked. So let's talk about let's talk about the possible casualties from this takeover, because I think Eric Ten Hag is front and center when it comes to that. Mm. And when you talk about Eric Ten Hag, we talk about Man United's identity and it being Eric Ten Hag's identity. Alignment's an important thing here, and at, let's be honest. The reason I I said I think he is the guy as well was the Ajax connection mm. because the Ajax connection that that bringing through of youth but having success as well, playing great football, different style of football, playing great football, that is something that Man United have done as well. So there was that alignment there. Yeah, Ten Hag comes in and everyone who's watching this right now, you know exactly what I'm about to say. He says I want to go and do this and get the transitions, and then. Fast forward a couple of months or it's not really going well. He goes, I can't play that style of football. I I really think that sentence, and it's very difficult for managers, especially when things mm. are going well, especially at Man United. I think that sentence is the thing that could, could in time lose him his job because unless unless there is something along the lines you can't play like Pep, mm. um, and I guess it comes down to personnel as well, which makes life very difficult. They've had a lot of injuries as well. That plays a big part of it as well. But... The game against Tottenham it does really it speaks volumes in terms of you know if you have an alignment of philosophy, if it is on the front foot, you can play Emerson Royale, you can play Ben Davies, you can play these people and yeah. and and make a change. So coming back to that identity and you know every Man United fan wants fast, exciting football, but we're, but winning football. What what where United are right now is we're we're stuck between where we were last season. And what Ten Hag wants to do this season, that's, and, and yeah. we just can't, we cannot find the middle ground. But of it, it starts with him. Like of that's what we're talking about. You get to get out of Fergie's shadow. You don't need another Fergie. You need another guy who's who's got that gravitas and and and, and certainty in who he is and what he wants to to create a new identity that is in the shadow but burst through it if you know but, what I mean but he did have that right so that's why we went but after but ruthlessness isn't ruthlessness and coming from Ajax and having yeah. that identity is one thing but the ruthlessness with the playing staff but then if you don't showcase any kind of um, energising identity then you're going to get caught out he and that's ha- his I mean, problem yeah but he got, he got caught out straight away because he went into the season with a clear plan switch Man United to playing one number six two aggressive number eights win the ball high up the pitch high energetic pressing and then just a kind of semi-structured team go, hey, just pass around these two. Shut the bed, Nick. Just, just, just pass around these two blokes and then you've got Casemiro on his own who can't cover that much ground. And all of a sudden, his, everything he's working towards in pre-season, he got it wrong. And then he's thinking, shit, 
what do I need to uh, and then he now is stuck between but he's blinked now he's blinked now it's too late I didn't realise you know what I, I got wrong with Ten Hag right from the very start I thought he was really somebody who was fixed to a style of play like 4-2-3-1 you're, un, you're underlapping for I thought that but what he is and what he's admitted to is that he he changes his style and tactics according to the players that he's got so he actually makes his teams around the individuals he has rather than thinking I'm going to imprint my identity on this team mm. he's allowing the players to sort of mould how he approaches the games right so and, and and people have spoken about this when it comes to Man United as well in terms of again identity is identity style of play if style of play is one thing that's not what Fergie did Fergie would mix it up and mm. find ways of winning do you, we're going to talk about the who are going to be the casualties from this ownership okay yeah. Eric Ten Hag is the first name that I wonder about we'll get to the players in a second yeah. Can you be a successful manager and have alignment? And Dan Ashworth has said this himself. If you want, if you're going to change manager every 40 months with the general average, and again, this is something that's happened at QPR. If you go ball playing manager, Warburton, he was a QPR manager, ball playing um, manager, Mick Beale, ball playing manager, Neil Critchley. Ball playing? I don't know what that means. Possession-based, all those, right? And then you go Gareth Ainsworth, <laughs> and it's direct, like, curl up into a ball. Yeah. And then you then end up buying, instead of young, exciting technical players, you end up buying, absolutely no disrespect to them, they're all doing okay for us this year, but Asmir Begovic, 37, Steve Cook, who's actually been really good, but who's well over 30, yeah. and, and Colback as well, well over 30. Like, the alignment's not there, and it utterly smashes up everything that you want to do. Yeah. Can you be a great manager and not have that clarity of thought? Because you're saying Eric Ten Hag is one that's going to wobble around. Klopp doesn't do that. Pep doesn't do that. Arteta doesn't do that. No managers do that anymore. It feels like he had the clarity of thought going into the season and it's not worked. And he's just trying... And and I know that people don't want to speak about it. Injuries have really screwed us this season. Really, really badly. And nobody wants to talk about it. They really, really don't. But he is... um, He's... He's broken. So like someone like Ange Postacoglu has come in. They've had the same amount of injuries, more. Like look at those two benches at the weekend. They were crap, both of them. But Man United yeah. was actually somehow better. Oh, I know. I know that. I'm not talking about uh, now. Like, Postacoglu is, and this is, a, this is what really annoys me as well. Like I don't care what Postacoglu is doing at Spurs. It but, it's, is like, but it's working at Spurs. I know, but it's like comparing a Ford to a Ferrari. It's United, but it's not, but it is got, United your Ferraris, But what's better, a yeah, 2023 Ford or a 1930s I'm, Ferrari? I'm not, look, I'm saying the scale and the scope of the job is just, it's uncomparable. It really is. and I, 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 it's, it's like people going, oh, the news are down, the next. Stop, no, stop that. It's just the first of whoever this person is. And people love to compare about anything that's gone on somewhere else. It's 11 else. players against 11 players. I, know that. I don't understand yeah, what yeah, you're when, saying. Yeah, when you break it down into the simplistic, yeah, what shows on the pitch, yes. But Manchester United are entirely broken. And Ten Hag now is reflect. And I'm not saying that everything that's happened to Ten Hag now is because of all the stuff behind the scenes. A lot of his problems are self-inflicted. And he needs to fix them himself. But now the football is very reflective of what's happening in our club. I have to disagree because I think patterns of play are so important in football. Because uh, if, this, if, this if, is why you're correct. Now, if I set a challenge here, if I go... You know, there's four seats here and I go, right, here's a ball. We've got to get it round. I'm going to throw it to you. Just throw it round. Yeah. Like, you know the pattern of play, right? I know. If that. I don't tell you and I, and I just go like that and throw it to the guy opposite me, he's then got a decision. It slows it down. This is what, when you break it down to this simplistic, what is he doing on the training ground? 
how, and this is where I understand the frustrations of United fans because there are certain games where where it just it just works and that it's really really frustrating me because I saw so much good from Ten Hag last year I get and I that. genuinely feel that he does align with where I think this club could go if he was just the head coach. Let's move this along a little bit then. So, so what? One does he need saving this season? He needs to save himself. That's it. Right. And how? So how does? Uh, what saves him this season? How does he save himself this season? The second half of this season, Man United start playing like we did between January and March last year, where back from the World Cup, we beat City, we beat, beat Barcelona. Barcelona, we won the League Cup. United were flying at that point. That mm. was the best part. And post League Cup, there was a massive hangover that lasted to the rest end of the and season. And in terms of obviously, in terms of uh, winning games, that's great. But in terms mm. of performance, what what is flying? Oh, Barca! If you watch us away at Barcelona in the new Camp, uh, I think that's the first time we've scored at the new Camp. I don't know when the record was. It was a long <laughs> time. I think it was back to ninety nine. Ninety nine, yeah. I think it was. Yeah. Um, but just the way it was, it's the intensity out of possession, which is kind of a hallmark of a Ten Hag team. And when and this is what's hurt us so much this year is we've had that intensity to a certain degree, and then we just get played around. Mm-hmm. Just a half decent team goes, look, right lads, United like Spurs for example, United are going to have two weaknesses: one cutbacks, let's score one of them; what, two set pieces, let's score one of them as well. They're going to press you here, just two passes, drop a midfielder deep, one extra ball, and you're going to run into space. Ten Hag's press is getting found out. And it's because we're stuck between two systems. When we've got a defence which is so... I mean, we're playing Johnny Evans as defender. Played bloody well. Very good. It's ridiculous how he's basically one of the best players at the United this season. But you've got Evans and Varane who aren't athletic. So you have to play a deeper line. So there's too much space between the lines. And it's not just about personnel, but we're stuck between systems. What was working last year and what he wants to do this year. And he doesn't know what to do. And he's like, shit, my job's under threat. Let's put Scott McTominay on. And he's just... He's lost his marbles quite a bit. Yeah, so so but for this is why I'm struggling is for him to be the guy, okay, you can maybe say, okay, look, everything around me, you know, it's that meme of the dog and everything's burning around him. Like maybe mm. that's Ten Hag right now, right? But you have to draw a line with these, you know, Dan Ashworth and these guys coming in and go and hopefully they've had this meeting and he's gone, Look, I can't with all these players out, I can't do what I want to yeah. do. Very quick just sort of yes and no kind of question. The squad, when everyone's fit, mm. can he play the way he wants to play? I mean, if he can't, then he's going to get sacked. Then, then it has to be on then, him at some then, point, then right? Compl- then he's completely getting sacked. Okay. So so really, kind of between now and then, because I've said this a few times, like, I think you've been fortunate to get the points that you've got this year. I've no idea how we're still in a position <laughs> where we can it's have a conversation. Still, yeah. It's stupid. We've but, been playing abysmal. But with that in mind, you could then I could easily see you playing better mm. and having less points. I can easily see that because that's football, isn't it? That happens, right? And we're only playing once a week right now, which will also play into our hands. Like everything right now is just geared towards. If you look at this top four, like City aren't going to drop out, Liverpool aren't going to drop out. I wouldn't expect Arsenal to drop out, and Spurs are a significantly better football team than us right now. And that means one of those four has got to make so many mistakes between now and the end of the season. So you're eight points off top four at the moment, and that's that's perfectly reasonable. Well, you want five, don't you? Fifth, fifth spot as is, well. Is, this, is fifth Champions League this year? I, I think it's Something getting less and less. It's one of the, those. Are, that's one of the things in football that once it's decided, let me know. But I'm not looking into it. I can't be asked. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, uh, but 
so so again, so for him to save himself. Yeah. And I think he he's the but, only person who it, can save. So him. you've got 32 points in in the first 20 games, right? In the second half, if you got the same amount of points, mm. but would you rather have the same amount of points but like I can see it now? Or do you have to see it? And by that I obviously mean that clear identity that we keep talking about. Do you need to see that by the end of the season for him to save his job? Yes. Okay. I agree. I, I, and I don't think that's an unrealistic expectation whatsoever. And, and that's my disappointment is that I think with, with Postacoglu, the reason I keep coming back to him is that with all those injuries, it's the philosophy that's got him through. Yeah. It's the philosophy that's allowed him to keep getting points and that's why he's eight points ahead of Man United who've and, been lucky. And I, and I would say that, I, I, and I can't know this, but my um, assumption is that Postacoglu, from a coaching perspective, is able to um, vocalise his philosophies in a simpler fashion to the point where people understand it and are able to buy in a lot quicker. I think Ten Hag's are a little bit more complicated. Okay. Can I check this out? And English being his second language, I think is a part of that as well. This, this, so uh, very quickly, Eric Ten Hag, can he, will he be sort of um, happy to sort of give up the reins when it comes to bringing in new players? No, he won't be. But when he came into United, who is he going to trust? Okay, John Murta, get okay, the Glazers. I get stuffed, mate. And there's no chance I'm trusting any of you. Go in and buy my players. I know these players. Bring them in. Anthony, class player. His talent ID. 90. Is, oh, his talent, lot, but yeah, nah, get him in. His talent ID <laughs> is clearly crap, right? Mm. He can manage a squad that he knows brilliant. He can, he can nurture young talent brilliant. There's certain things he's very good at. Don't give him the money. Yes, let, let, I think we learned that. The way I describe it is like Eric Ten Hag should be involved in the first ten percent and the last ten percent of a transfer. First ten percent is I need a ball playing number six. Okay, so you've identified the profile you want. See you in a couple of months. The board, the recruitment team comes back and says we've done all of our research and these are the players. Mm. He can then at that point go like the look of this player, but he can't at the start go. Go and sign Anthony. So this is the problem I keep coming back to, though, as well. Is like in terms of um, deciding what the what the identity is moving forward. Yeah. That's not his decision. No. So so when a new owner comes, when you have new ownership and you have the best in class in in Dan Ashworth, it should be him who decides how Man United are going to play for the next forty years. Right? Amazing stuff. Right? So Eric Ten Hag shouldn't be involved in that. And Eric so, Ten Hag might lose his job as a consequence of that. And, and I think that's why I think... I'm, I'm fascinated to see how this plays out because I just can't see how it... Either he goes kind of cap in hand or really double down, doubles down on... Look at the whole environment here. This is not me. I want to do the Ajax style because it doesn't make sense for Dan Ashworth to completely write the script the way he wants to and he should be given that carte blanche because of what he's done with England mm. and other clubs and then oh it turns out Eric Ten Hag's the guy for us anyway result what's more likely is actually we want to go and kind of have this other guy our guy and I last last time I'm going to bring him up liar probably <laughs> so I've got a list of possible next managers I'll go through some of them but I can't get away from Postacoglu being your next next manager Postacoglu coming to United. Yeah, I can't get away from it. Why? Because it's. I think it's everything. That's actually the first time I've heard that. Really? Yeah. I think it's everything you want. I think it's. 
it's owning the ball, which I think is important in the modern game. Mm. It's pressing high. It's um, attacking with a bit of vigor. You could have a Madison or this, you know, who's your Rooney or Cantona, your that guy, that George Best, like Bruno Fernandez, Bruno Fernandez, like that guy who is off the cuff. That fits that. It's about scoring goals. It's about scoring one more than the opposition. Mm. I think he's old enough and big enough and, and, and has such standing in the Premier League right now. I think he makes utter, like complete sense. Do you think you would say that in a year's time? I think, yeah. I, I, I can't... Well, I guess you know what's going to be interesting... I think in life you have um, you've got to you've got to use vigor when you've got it. You've got to use energy when you've got it. Yeah. What's also really interesting is I've heard Madison talk about how he actually keeps. He says, "Oh, Pascal kind of keeps a distance from from the players." And I thought, "Oh, because you everyone kind of, you all kind of think he's more sort of Klopp side, mm. you know, and he sort of you know puts his arm around. He's sort of like you know Aussie bear, but it feels apparently he's not. And and again, that for me screams Fergie, an mm. element of distance." To allow for, you know, a bit of amb- ambiguity that can actually lead to you kind of going, well, I don't want to upset the boss. Look, truth be told, right? Now, it was Carl Anker from The Athletic who first said this, and it's just stuck in my head. Eric Ten Hag is effectively our interim manager between now and the end of the season. I agree. I think that's a really fair way to describe it. Yeah. I think if he, between now and May, we start week in, week out, building and playing better and better and better, United fans are going to start getting excited and getting on board again and going, you know what? Maybe Eric Ten Hag can be the right man with the sporting structure in place. But if that system still isn't in place by the end of the season, Ten Hag won't. So this will be... Ineos have not just invested 1.5 billion to see if Eric can do it. Yeah, yeah, that's what I keep coming back to as well. So I think he's I think he's in a very difficult place when everyone's talking about oh, it's the players. Like for me, it, keeps, it comes back to like, you know, what are you trying to do? I yeah. can't see what he's trying to do. Um, possible next managers, you know, there are some guff on this list. Favourite is Graham Potter. Speaking of. Lopetegui, second favourite. Ruben Amarim. Feels Ruben, risky though, right? Sporting, sporting Lisbon, right? Mm. There's going to be a sort of... I, I, I imagine Nice's manager will be on this list at some point soon, like Farioli. Uh, he's not, actually. But I imagine... Oh, right, yeah, yeah. In yeah. the same... You're talking about De Zerbi, you're talking about Amarim, you'll throw in Farioli's name as well. It's just going to be that new breed. But Ten Hag was the yeah. new-ish breed. I feel like you get swallowed up a little bit if you're too, too green. United is just a different behemoth. Yeah. To, United has swallowed Mourinho, Van Howe. Uh, if It's swallowed... Some big old names. Mm. It would probably swallow a lot more managers. That's why I keep coming back to Ange. Because he'll hold you. This is the thing. The thing I've been impressed with is with with Tottenham. There's, it's the you know it's the Spursy thing. It's the no trophy thing, which gets thrown. Mm. And he, what I like is that previously you had Conte and you had Mourinho, and it was they were sort of holding their hand back, going, "Come on, like trying to come up here and be a winner like me." Yeah. Whereas Postecoglou goes, "Let's go together." Mm. And I think that's kind of what Man United are kind of com- coming back to what to needing that. But you also need someone with a little bit more in the bank in terms of our, our minds to sort of help with the narrative a little bit than he would have had if he'd come straight to Man United from Celtic. Of all of all the names that Spurs been... fans are screaming, yeah, right yeah, now. yeah. Flav is just going to absolutely yeah, unsubscribe. That's why I did it here. I'm saving it here. But, but all... like you got Potter, Lopetegui, Amarim, De Zerbi is a car crash waiting to happen at Man United. Oh, man, the car crash is already Flick? crashed. That's kind of your football. Mm. What you want a little bit? You're going to have to take some elements of 
you know, of modern football controlling but this, the game. But this is why the next couple of months from an Ineos perspective are so important because we are really going to start understanding what the actual vision of our football clubs is for them. Like we might have a vision of what we want the football to be and we want this sexy football flowing, blah, blah, blah. But they need to have the perfect man to execute the vision that they have. And that might be someone different to a lot of their... One thing is that you, you said right at the start of the podcast, there's still four chapters left. Mm. Like... In terms of seeing the football that you want to see, and again, come back to Dan Ashworth and the England DNA. I think that was put in place. You know, that was put in place a long time ago mm. uh, when Greg Dyke was the was the main man, at, and they were working towards twenty twenty two. And it took, you know, I want to say a decade to sort of kind of get where they wanted to, and, and we're seeing it now. In terms of the seeing it on the pitch, yeah, I want to move on to possible casualties when it comes to the the squad now because. Yeah. We've spoken about Ten Hag enough. And I think the thing you can't get away from, and again, it's a difficult thing for Ten Hag, is that, okay, the, you've got these injuries, but these guys are going to come back, and then, okay, hopefully you can sort of put a bow on it and go, there you go, there's a team. But what generally people will come back to and say, you know, say smugly is the players aren't good enough. The problem is, in terms of the rebuild, when we go through sort of players, and I always go to sort of when when is their contract up because that's going to lead to sort of when you're going to decide to sell yeah. them, right? And you need to get rid of a lot of players in that squad. In terms of this uh, summer, players out of uh, contract, Johnny Evans, one more year, Johnny? Come on! Genuinely Tom, might happen that. I mean, he's 36 actually. Tom Heaton, Anthony Martial, Amrabat, um, on option to buy. Um but you know, you're not going to make any money from that, right? No. We move on to 2025. Yeah. 2025, we've got a few more options here. Mm -hmm. So you've got Scott McTominay, Rafael Varane, Harry Maguire, Aaron Wambasaka, Lindelof, Ahmed Diallo, Christian Eriksen, Hannibal, who's just gone. Yeah. Uh, Palestri, who's linked with a move. I don't know if it's a loan or, or the end of it, or, or a full move. Or And uh, Camwala, is that how you say it? Yeah. Camwala. So you've got those through in, in 2025. In terms of sort of bringing some money in, and and also just broadly, in terms of casualties, is there any on that list that you want to keep? I was about to say that I, I can I can list them off to you because Ahmad Diallo is staying at the club. Woody Campbell is an eighteen-year-old who's just broken through. We don't know how good he's going to be. He might not make it through, but he may well. Yeah, but stupid not to stick with him. Every single other name on that list is dispensable. Yes, and but and also, you kind of. So here's the thing I wonder is again with FFP, do you need to sell them? Do you, are you looking for sellable assets yes. within the squad yes, right now? Yes, yes, okay. Yes. So within that, with that in mind, I mean it, Scott McTominay, wow! Like the, the the hatred towards this guy, he scored quite a lot of goals for you this year. It's it's not his fault, right? It's not his fault. He came on against Burnley. We were he scored two goals in like the ninety third, ninety sixth minute, like absolutely. Brent, Brentford, wasn't it? Was was it Brentford as well? Yeah, Brentford, no, yeah, Brentford. Brentford. And then he scored away at Sheffield United. He scored two against Chelsea. Chelsea. He at a time when Ten Hag was on, if we had lost a couple of more results at that point in time, he's been th effective. There would have been conversations around Ten Hag maybe losing his job. So he was like his um, flood protection. He he was there. He, <laughs> he was he was the sandbag at the bottom of the door. That's what that's what McTominay was for him. You're right. And then Ten Hag keeps kind of looking towards him. But McTominay should have been sold in the summer. And I think he was West Ham. We were getting linked yep. with. They tried to buy Maguire and McTominay for sixty mil, and we said no to McTominay and yes to Maguire. And then Harry said, "What? Don't well, fancy it. I don't fancy. It. I'd rather stay on this big contract." And now he's still here. So. If had that had happened in the summer, honestly, I think United's summer 
I was going to rank it at like an eight or a nine out of ten because that would have been two players have gone and we would have got probably Jean-Claire Tadebo. We would have already had the centre-back in and so many of our problems this season wouldn't have ever existed. Mm. So McTominay, Maguire, Varane. I mean, as I said, there's one or two. Ericsson's going to be sort of naturally leaving anyway. Is he, Ericsson been a great free signing. Yeah. But, but we're not going to give him a new contract. Yeah, and I, I think I did it on a video the other day. It's like, as, as much as it's about, with some of these players, they de- they just desperately need some legs around them. Like, mm. if you're going to have a play with Ericsson who's not got loads of legs, then if you play Bruno Fernandes and Kobe Mainu there, you're going to get overrun at some point, especially yeah. when your defence is deep. You're, you're in trouble there. So one player I did, I was sort of chatting it through with someone, and the one name that we wondered you might want to stick with, Aaron Wambsaka. Do you think he could survive? I think Aaron Wambasaka could survive if Man United were to, in my opinion, DeLow. I think United can upgrade DeLow and get like a proper, like a Urian Timber, I think would have been perfect signing. Wambasaka is a perfect defensive specialist in certain games where you need that because he's done it so many times against Raheem Sterling over the years. If you need to be a little bit more defensively sound, you might play Wan-Bissaka there. He's going to not be the guy going forward, but in certain games and occasions, he might be a good squad option. Yes, yeah. I, but again, uh, you know, this is where I get confused with the sort of need for money. But actually, I, I like it because like, I'm not, I see this now uh, when I watch some Newcastle content. Like, They're getting really fed up with FFP. And I, and I love it. <laughs> I love it because... That's the point. Let's keep you all squished together a little yeah. bit so that we can have a nice, you know, competitive league. So Wambasaka, you might need that money to allow yourself to spend that little bit of money. So if Crystal Palace want to take Wambasaka back and we get Elise, then that would be a lovely conversation. Interesting. <laughs> a straight swap, you know. No, 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 <laughs> I'm not that crazy. We'll have to give we'll a, a couple money, of hula hoops. Okay. <laughs> and final question, a little bomb here right at the end. We move to 2026. Three players, 2026. You've got Bruno Fernandes, you've got Casemiro, you've got... Uh, Tyrell Malassia. Is it worth, with FFP in mind, looking to cash in on Bruno Fernandes? Because he is, because I think the thing to remember is that you've got people out of contract. You're not really going to sell them in January. Yep. They're just going to leave. In 2025, they're still in the last year of their contract, which is not ideal. So, in terms of people with two years on their contract, yep. which is the moment where you kind of look to sell, it's Bruno time. Would you, how would you feel about selling him? Currently, apparently his market value is 70 million. Bruno Fernandes is a player who, for some reason, polarises United fans more than any player uh, because of how he carries himself in frustrating moments in games. He loses his head like a fan. Like, he's hot-headed. Like, he plays emotionally. In, mm. And it works when it, when it works, but when it doesn't work and it's, and it's shoulders down, it's hands in the air, it's moaning, and he's the captain, it doesn't reflect well. Mm. But... There is absolutely no chance I would sell him. I think United would be mad. He is and has still been one of the biggest and best creators in Europe's top five leagues for like the last three seasons, despite how bad we've been. And if we have a midfield setup of the likes of, say, Mainu and, for example, Onana from Everton, like a big, physical, powerful, space-covering, dual-winning midfielder, him, those two players behind Bruno, and just say to Bruno... Don't have to run around everywhere, dude. You just stay in the number 10 position and all you've got to focus on is the final ball. I guarantee you the output from Bruno goes through the roof and nobody will be talking about selling him. So he's 29 now. See, that's the thing with this summer is that if you do want to sell, this is the thing. Ali Maxwell said it on this podcast. He was talking about, he's talking about championship teams actually, but 
I think it were if FFP continues to sort of, and again, it's probably winding up people, but if it rings true in the sense of it, you know, stops people from spending too much and you've got to behave and you've got to bring in money and all that stuff. He said, selling's good. Selling is good. And when you do that, you have to be sensible and do it at the right time. If you don't sell Bruno this summer, 29-year-old Bruno Fernandez, you, you're not going to sell him or you're certainly not going to sell him for any kind of money that you really want to. And United are being classically, we do that. We, we, players overstay their welcome to the point that they don't really have a value by the time we want to sell them. Yeah, and so again, coming back to what do you want moving forward, I think you make a really good point in terms of that, that sort of fast style of play. If you look at Bruno Fernandes' stats, every year key passes right up there. But this year, if you also align that with um, goals and assists or expected goals and assists, previous years he's been up there as well. Yeah. They've been a much more functional functioning side this year right down because they are kind of all over the place so I'm intrigued to know is the truth that in a uh, in a better machine will he be better or in a better machine does he get the ball less and it kind of it doesn't work he, as well. He gets Do you know the, what I mean? He gets the ball less, but he gets the ball where he should be getting right the ball. Areas, yeah. He shouldn't be getting the ball on the edge of his own box. He should be getting the ball 10 yards outside of the opposition's box. But you know what the question is, which isn't around Bruno, it's about Rashford. This summer, I, I am predicting, I might be wrong, I think Mbappe finally goes to Real Madrid. I think the first place they look is Rashford, PSG. Oh, because last summer yeah. his brother was in in Paris wow. to speak to PSG, I think this summer there could be a big bid from PSG, and that is a conversation that United fans need to have. What? How much do you think you can get for him? I don't. I've I've not even thought about it. I just that's that's. I mean, that's interesting. Like, and, yeah, and he, I do you know what the thing with him is? I can't. His body language is very difficult to read. Like he's sort of. It's kind of not his fault. But I mean, but it is his body. But he, like, <laughs> but like, I think that because he's that Man United guy, you kind of want a bit more passion from him. And there are moments when he, you know, he's kind of not tracking back. He might have been told not to track back because you're a transition team. Yeah, and you want yeah. him the other, the other end. Um, right, Rashford's a really, really strange one. I think the Sancho situation has played heavily on him, uh, but he also wasn't in good form prior to that anyway. So I don't think it can just be accounted simply to Ten Hag ostracizing Sancho out of the team mm. but Rashford again with United fans like when you sign a contract of 300 grand a week you will be scrutinized more that is part and parcel of getting a contract of said size and mm. if you score 30 goals the year before and all of a sudden your, your output is like I don't know how many he scored in the league now he scored against Arsenal three I think three two or three mm. then questions will be asked and it's not to it's, this isn't me saying ah just sell Rashford get rid of him but I would prepare yourselves as United fans for PSG to come knocking on the door. And I think that might be a conversation that Ineos do. And again, as well, tying into it, the trend of how transfers are going to change in the next few years. It's like Cole Palmer going to Chelsea. Selling your academy players is worth double. Wow, yeah. So Rashford, yeah, as, a, makes sense. as a huge signing, as a huge sale, might actually solve a hell of a lot of United's FFP problems. His current market value, according to transfer market, is uh, 70 million euros. His highest ever was March uh, 2021, 85 million. His contract expires in 2028. So you have I, those years on them as well. We've got a brand new contract. He's at 26, 27. He's like prime peak value. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's got everything for like a north of 80 million pound sale. 
And I think it could, I'm not saying it will happen, but I think the conversations will happen this summer. But again, it, it's about, you know, it's about being smart for once for Man United. And that means you have to get rid of players sometimes. And sometimes You've got to make those decisions. Yeah, Selling is good. Selling yeah, is good. Sometimes it won't, Bombshell. it won't be like 100% everybody agrees with it. But then in a couple of years you go, you know what? Actually made the right call there, right? And yeah, and, and you know, it's my podcast. So I'll bring it back to QPR as much as I can. The, the last, the thing that QPR are struggling with now is that we had players and we should have sold them, and mm. now it's like, why didn't you sell them? And that this, you've got to be, you've got to be um, savvy with this. And that's down to management and structure, and they actually know the right decisions and they know the vision of the club. They yeah. take those decisions. Okay, interesting, Sam. I loved it, that. man. That was great. Little bombshell at the end there. Rashford on his way out. Clip <laughs> oh, that. I'm going get no. out. Of there. No. Um, I mean, I was going to say good luck with the ownership, but I mean, look, every, all the ingredients no, I seriously are there. Need sort good it luck. out. I sort see. it out yourselves. I do need good luck. Okay. Well, uh, mate, uh, let me do your promo for you. Guys, go check out United People's TV. If you want the information first when it comes to Man United, that is the channel for you. They're on Instagram. They're bloody everywhere, United People's TV. Yeah, we are everywhere. Go and follow them absolutely everywhere. And that way, if you're a Man United fan, you'll get the information quickly and you can rely on it as well. Congratulations with the channel, Sam. Thanks, man. Thanks for coming in. Yours. Thanks, dude. Look at us, eh? That's it. What's yeah. that meme? What's his face? Is it Paul? Is it Paul? <laughs> yeah, Paul Rudd, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, me and you. Who knew? Who knew? Hey, um, look at us. Speaking of which, if you want to support this podcast please do you can do that by letting people know about it when you see clips online make sure you retweet those as well that always helps and of course uh, follow the podcast be it on Spotify you can watch us exclusively on Spotify but also uh, you can get it absolutely everywhere and give us a 5 star rating if you're listening or watching on Spotify right now thank you so much and we'll be back next week have a good week see ya <laughs> good feelings all round <laughs> <laughs> 